welcome to Force Divided by Mass. This is episode two, and I will be joined by special guest Alex Hutchinson. Alex is an award-winning writer, an ex-physicist, and an accomplished runner in his own right. And without further ado, let's jump into the interview midstream. So I'll see you on the other side. So you write about the science of endurance, and your book Endure is quickly becoming a classic. You also have your blog, Sweat Science, where you write about the science of endurance as well. Um, I read your latest article this morning about transcranial direct current stimulation, which I'd love to get into a bit later in the interview. But first, let's talk a little bit about your book, Endure. Um, it's extremely thorough. It covers so much ground. So maybe you can just start by talking about what led you to write it. We can kind of go from there. Yeah, sure. So, the, the, I mean, the, the basic question that the, the book set out to answer was, uh, you know, what defines our limits? What if, if you're if you're at that point where you're pushing as hard as you can and you can't push any harder, whether you're in the middle of a race or whatever the context is, and you just feel like that's it, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm maxed out. Well, what is the parameter that's maxed out? Um, and, uh, you know, I started out thinking that would be a fairly straightforward question to answer, that it was a question of talking to the scientists who study this stuff and, and, and get, you know, getting those answers and writing them in, in a, you know, in an article or a book. Um, but it turned out to be a lot more involved than that. And it turned out that it's really hard to figure, to figure out, uh, what is the variable? What is the parameter that, that we, that is maxed out in it at any given moment when you're pushing hard? So all of which to say is it became, you know, this was like 12 years ago that I started looking into this and, and that, and that's why it ended up as such a sort of sprawling, uh, long and, and varied book because there isn't a simple answer. And, you know, there's a lot of factors, both physical and you know, physiological and mental that, that go into the limits of endurance and all of that to actually, to answer your actual question, all of that stemmed from my own experiences as a, as a runner. This was why I wanted to, to, uh, to ask this question, to explore this question, because we've all had those situations where you're pushing as hard as you can and you reach what feels like a limit and then, you know, a week later or whatever, that limit feels completely different or, or you, you, you discover that you, uh, you know, had some reserves that you weren't able to access before, whatever the case may be. So uh, as a guy, I started out as a scientist um, in my professional career before I became a journalist. So, so the approach I wanted to take to understanding my own experiences as a runner over the years was to, to sort of ask the scientific question. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, I, you know, I initially thought maybe it would just be an article, but, but 10 years later it was, it was clear that this was a complex enough topic that it was going to be a book and that that book wouldn't end up with any sort of neat and tidy answers that, that solves the whole question, but it, but it was an opportunity to explore something that was interesting to me. So that's a really good answer. How much of the research that, that you gathered, have you applied directly back to your own running? Yeah, that's a that's a a question I always try and dodge. Um, <laughs> less than you'd think, to be honest. Uh, and it's funny, you know. There's a story that. So I, I okay. Let me answer with a, a really oblique uh, answer. When I was in high school, I dated a a girl who was probably who's smarter than me, and she was trying to explain some philosophy to me. And there was some some an, not anecdote, some like parable about. A man who's 
you know, I can't remember the details. I, I know I've tracked it ever since. I'll have to email her or something because I, I can't figure out what the exact anecdote. But it was something along the lines of a man is like staring at a gate and he doesn't know what it is. And a wise man tells him to, you know, go spend 10 years traveling around the world, uh, learning stuff. And then he comes back 10 years later and looks at the gate and says, oh, it's a gate. And, and it, it just seems like such a, at the time I was like, what does that even mean? That means nothing. Um, now having written this book or having, you know, let's say studied and thought about the science of endurance for, for more than 10 years, it, it has this resonance for me um, because it's like the more I learned about the, the, the scientific and technological side of training, the more I came back to the idea that actually the, you, you know, the, the real, really the smartest thing to do is to tap into your own intuitions and your own feelings and your own sensations. And so I, I, I look at training and I look at my own running from a very, in a very different way than I did 20 years ago, but I don't have any, I don't have a lot of simple things like, oh, now I know I should be doing 75% of my runs at this pace and 25% at the other pace or, or you know, it's it's actually I'm much less certain or much less dogmatic about the details of training, and much more in tune with the idea that you have to feel what's what's right. You have to have a sense of what you're trying to do and where you're trying to go, but you have to be able to sort of intuit some of the the feelings and and some of the differences. Um, I would say, I mean, just to to give a, a maybe a more a, a less sort of weird answer to that question, um, it, you know, if if it was like what one thing would I do differently? If I was, you know, if I could have had a time machine and go back 20 years, is I would take sports psychology much more seriously. I, I really tended to dismiss it when I was, you know, competing at my most serious. Um, and now I'm much more, uh, let's say, much more open to the idea that some of these techniques that sports psychologists have been talking about for 20 or 30 or 40 years actually really have the power to measurably change your performance. Um, things like motivational self-talk that I talk a little bit about in the book. Now, where have I, where have I, how have I applied this today? Um, maybe less than I, I, I probably should or, or, or would in theory. The, the, the truth is that, you know, right now I have, I, I was a very, very serious competitive athlete until my early thirties. Now I compete. I still do a couple hard workouts a day and I still race, but it's, I'm less, worried about the last 1% and I'm more worried about my kids who are three and five and in and, and, and terms of the time I have available. So it's not so much that I don't think there are things that I've learned. It's that, uh, the, you know, in terms of the, the sort of hierarchy of where I'm spending my attention, I, I'm, I'm, I'm less inclined to, to, uh, to be chasing that 1% than I was 10 or 15 years ago. And then I might be in five years when my kids are a little more self-sufficient that, then I may be sort of back to, hey, what can I do to get that last percent? No, I, I understand that. Um, my daughter's 10 now, so I'm back to chasing a little harder. But there was definitely- Nice. <laughs> I look forward to those uh, to, to, to that arrival for myself. Yeah, I, like for the first five years, that was definitely not the case. Um, but it's a great five years. I mean, more like 10 years. I don't know, whatever whatever the, the timeline is. Um, so- I've read your book, I don't know, I've definitely read it two or three times. Like I go back and read pieces of it. It's pretty entertaining, like it's, it's a good read. Um, it's also good to have on tape. But it's funny, you know, I think that I started, you know, maybe from the similar place, like, like I had read some of your, like your sweat science and you had another book, I can't remember, like strength or cardio, I can't remember what it's called now. Um, 
And, you know, I was really expecting a lot of, you know, all the science part. And I guess the mental part is science, but what I'm, I feel like what, in a way, you're left with at the end, in a way, like you could sum it up in a sentence, like it's all mental, you know, like I know it's not like you cover so much ground and, and I found a lot of things interesting. You know, I'm a runner. So I found a lot of things interesting that were outside of running that I hadn't really thought about, you know, like diving and all these kinds of things. Um, but, you know, can you talk a little bit about your experience? I know you ran a marathon and you spent a lot of time doing a lot of, you know, psychological, you know, experimenting a lot with the mental side of things. Um, how, how did that affect, do you think that affected your whole experience um, running that marathon that you did during that, that when you were writing that book? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot to pick out there. I mean, first of all, the, the, the sort of one line summary, it's all mental. I t- yeah. I mean, yes, that's, that's a, a fair summary with the caveat that of course it's not all mental <laughs> that, that that it's it's all mental once you've ticked off the physical boxes right like yeah, for sure um w- that were that you have to do the training and you have to be physically fit and then it's it's not a question it's not like m- training your mind will allow you to beat the other guy it's training your mind will allow you to get the most out of yourself relative to whatever your capacity is and your capacity totally depends on all the all the the usual physical stuff. So once you once you sort of come to that acceptance uh, to say that oh yeah you know the, if if I'm doing a, uh, a you know a test to failure an endurance test to failure the moment I give up is going is is ultimately determined by my mind not my muscles and you can prove that with very, you know you can show that with very simple experiments where you're like you know sitting against the wall with no. Uh, with no chair and how long can you stay up against the wall you offer people a reward you know for every 20 seconds they can stay up and the more the, the bigger the reward you offer the longer they stay up right like it's it's obvious if you're offered a dollar for every 20 seconds you're going to last longer on the wall than if you're offered a penny for every 20 seconds but the the point is that that proves that it wasn't yet you know at the moment when you fail it's not that your muscles uh are incapable it's just that you you, you no longer want to stay on the wall for the reward you're being offered so once you accept that then it, the, the inevitable next step is, okay, well, how do I change that? How do I train that? How do I uh, make my mind stronger so that I can push myself harder? And there's there are lots of different answers to that question, and none of them are quite as clear-cut or as satisfying as the physical side, where it's like, yeah, go for a run. Go do, go do intervals. Go do X, Y, and Z, and we know those things work. For the mental side, it's it's still sort of much more in its infancy, and it's much harder to quantify or measure those effects because it's very hard to do a placebo-controlled, you know, sports psychology study because you know whatever you know the techniques you're using. That being said, like so, the 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 thing you were mentioning, you know, when I ran a marathon, I spent twelve weeks beforehand doing brain endurance training, which is this idea that to, to run a good marathon, you, you or to, to do any sustained endurance task you have to it basically you're constantly having to override this very strong instinct within you that is telling you to slow down or to stop or to back off because that's you know you just um we've evolved to to shy away from just depleting ourselves unless there's very good reason to do so uh and so you can train yourself you can train you can you can think about the parts of the brain that are responsible for uh executive control for over for for 
helping you stay focused on a task even when you you know your instincts are telling you to stop and you can design computer games that that are computer tasks that basically train that part of the brain that force you to to stay focused and to override the desire to let your mind wander and so i did that for 12 weeks like for you know 5 days a week for you know 30 to 60 minutes typically and you know the, the main report i can make cuz let's let's be honest that was one guy running a marathon it wasn't a controlled study or anything i have no idea how i would have done without that brain training but what i can say is that stuff is hard it's really boring and time consuming and hard. And so that, I mean, that may sound like a glib thing to say, but it's actually, it's relevant because you can't, you know, you, you, you don't, if you want to get better at a sport, if you're telling someone to just basically go dig a hole in the backyard and then fill it back in, that's not going to be a sustainable way of, of, of doing it. So my conclusion was that I don't know whether brain endurance training works, but it it has there have to be other ways of integrating it into physical training. And so I did that marathon in 2013. And since then, that's the lines along which some of the researchers have been working is how do we make this not just something you sit down after dinner and, and sit in front of a computer doing the most boring task you could imagine for an hour, but how do we make this part of training? So for instance, how do you, you do a workout and during your your rest periods between intervals, you run over to an iPad and do something that fatigues your brain a little bit in order to train your brain. And so I think that's maybe a more fruitful approach, but we're still really, really early in the in the understanding of, to, to move beyond the understanding that the brain matters and go to the next level of how do we, how do we improve that? How do we manipulate it? Yeah, no, I find that really intriguing. Um, I, I, I'm a coach, you know, just for you know, amateur age groupers and things like that, not an elite coach. But I do, in my own running and coaching, take a baseline on a Stroop test and try to see if we can move the needle, you know, throughout the training cycle. Um, you know, no kidding. That's really, that's really interesting. So do, what, what, what do you see with, with the Stroop test? I mean, it, it's essentially a similar, you, you I mean, I take, so I have a Stroop, an app on the iPhone. It's a Stroop test. I, I'm a software engineer, so I built my own. Um, and I, you know, but to be honest, like I was very complex and I've simplified it. Um, but basically I'll take a baseline and let's say you do 50 correct answers in a minute or whatever. And then I'll, you know, like I'm trying to move the needle to try to get it so that you can get, increase that number over a period of time. Some of it through... Um, you know, endurance mental training by continuing to do this group test. But it's also a balance of just, you know, if, if the theory is that the Stroop is a baseline for, uh, you know, resisting the urge to stop, for example, it's like a uh, inhibitory control um, baseline, then, you know, theoretically, you should be able to hold a hard pace for longer if the Stroop was higher your Stroop score so it's just one marker that I would use to try to move forward and help you you know achieve maintaining that hard pace yeah I mean I, I've been totally interested to know whether independent of brain training whether just getting in better physical shape doing hard training will improve your Stroop test score I, I assume it would but I've never seen anyone actually test that I, I mean I don't know that I you know from a, the scientific method standpoint Sure, I haven't sure, yeah. sat down and done the study in, you know, and I've a little bit of endurance training, but not a ton. I, I think this is more of mental training. Like actually 
interviewed Matt Fitzgerald a few times, and he re he recounted a story to me, which I brought into my training, where basically he was talking about uh, he would give himself a grade based on when he finished a race, if if he left it, if he was completely done in, he would get an A, and if you know he didn't do his like didn't feel like he exerted enough effort he would give like a b or a c or a d or whatever but not based on the time based on if he actually gave that much effort so i think it's you know it's a little bit like that like can you you know it's what you're talking about can you sustain this effort past the point of comfort for longer like i would think that that would improve your stroop score but i also think that probably doing some level of mental endurance training in conjunction with it they'll probably both have a factor in there but I haven't done a study, so but I do use it in my coaching. It's one of the like baselines that I take. Well, that's great. I mean, I think that's really interesting, and it'll be interesting as time goes on to see what sort of patterns emerge from your from your data. Because I mean, there is there is some data using the Stroop test in uh, elite cyclists compared to just good recreational cyclists, mm -hmm. finding that they they were better at that. So that there is you know there's definitely basis for for what you're doing, and it'll be interesting to see how that how that works out yeah no i read that's an italian cyclist i read about that study that's actually what prompted me to start doing that um so it's just you know you take baselines on a lot of things right like if you're using a power meter whatever kinds of things you're using to measure you know the metric that you're trying to move people with um you know I, I, like it seems valid so it is part of my thing for the past year and a half or so and then when i read that started a little bit before i read your book and then when i read your book you know you went like a lot deeper on that topic yeah the, the, and there is i will say there's a company in switzerland called switch hmm. uh with two s's and they have a an app a brain training app and this is by one of the guys who who has done the research in this area um and i i'm blanking on the name of the app but it's it's a a brain endurance training app hmm. where, and that they're, they are, they, they, their goal is to be the training peaks of brain training. So they have, they want coaches to to take a bunch of baselines. And so they have the stoop test, but they have, I think they have like 35 different tests optimized for different sports and different purposes. Uh, precisely what you're saying. They, they want you, they want to start by taking a baseline and then use it as a way of checking in. Uh, and if you, and if you're specifically trying to improve, uh, you know, brain endurance or anything like that. You can you can quantify things. The Stroop task also just psychomotor vigilance tests and other things that are simple. They're all app based, so you just do it on a mobile phone, and it can give you a sense of of uh, yeah whether you're whether you're making quantifiable improvements in that area. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to check that out after after this. I mean, ultimately, you know, the main metric is did you run faster. Um, so that takes me to transcranial direct current stimulation like it seems like a good lead into that I, I read that article this morning can you talk a little bit about that and what was what that uh you know what it entailed yeah sure <laughs> this was uh, uh it's actually the first long feature i've done since the book came out so i was really sort of excited to to get a chance to dive a little deeper into something and it all basically started i got a press release earlier this year uh, talking about this new bike tour <laughs> where basically you go to Italy, you spend a week cycling through the Alps in Italy and France, and every morning or evening you get electric brain stimulation. I was like, what the heck? Like, what, what does that even mean? But it's it's put on, or the, the company that running this tour is the official sports medicine clinic of the Bahrain Merida 
cycling team, which is one of the, you know, it's a Tour de France Grand Tour cycling team. And, and, and so the promise is you use the same brain stimulation protocols that their pro uh, cyclists use. So I was like, okay, this seems like an opportunity to go spend a week in the Alps, which is a win situation for sure. And then to to talk to some, you know, the people who are doing brain stimulation with pro athletes. And the idea with this electric brain stimulation is basically you, it's basically like a, you know, a nine volt battery and a couple of electrodes. You run a very weak current through, through your brain and that a couple of milliamps. And that current just changes the polarization of the the of the neurons a little bit, it just makes them a little bit more likely to fire for about ninety minutes or two hours after stimulation. And you, depending on where you put the electrodes, you can affect different regions of the brain. And so you can affect the regions of the brain. There's there's a few different protocols that people have been studying for sports. Uh, you can sort of affect the inputs to the brain, try and make things feel easier. You can affect the outputs to the brain so that even when you're tired, let's say you're sending a weaker signal uh, from your the higher areas of the brain to your motor cortex, the motor cortex, will, is, if you've stimulated it, will still send a strong signal to your legs telling them to pedal or to run. Or you can stimulate regions responsible for what we've just been talking about, the self-regulation, the, the stuff that makes you able to keep pushing even when you are feeling tired and keep focused. So anyway, it's, it's very controversial. There's conflicting evidence. It's not clear whether this technique really works, but pro athletes are using it. Um, and so I spent a week in the Alps <laughs> uh, having a lot of fun eating really well, uh, going cycling, but also talking to these uh, scientists, these neurophysiologists who are applying brain stimulation to professional athletes. And you know, the, the truth is at the end of it, I came away not sure what to think. I'm not convinced that the the technology works, but I think it's possible. Like it's not it's not just sort of complete flimflam. It's it's there's reasonable research, but there's plenty of doubt as to whether the results are really reliable. And I came away uh, uncertain about. So how do we how do we decide like what's the threshold of evidence that's reasonable before you start using a new technology? And how do we decide what's fair? What's you know what's acceptable do do we want sport to involve uh you know running electricity through the brain before every ride or every run and I, you know i'm not i'm definitely not convinced of that uh, either you know because it's one thing if it's, if it works and people start using it then all of a sudden sort of everyone has to use it to to stay competitive so i was i was glad that i had you know 5000 words to wrestle with these topics because it, to me it's not it's not simple at all and it's um but it's a great example to me of uh, the issues in technology, and, and there's lots of issues of technology in sport, whether it's you know new running shoes with carbon fiber plates or the sort of line of doping uh, and what's allowed and what's not, and and the idea of brain stimulation in terms of if we're moving from the era of trying to enhance the body to trying to enhance the brain, is this the kind of uh, you know first step in that direction? So so that, yeah, that's that, that's what the story was about, and it was a lot of fun to report. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was intrigued with it. I mean, the first thought I did have, I mean, and you touched upon it was, you know, the ethics, like, how would that, you know, obviously with doping, it's easier to monitor. It seems like even if it did get banned from competition, it might be tricky to figure out if someone's doing it. Um, 
Yeah, absolutely. That's you know, I called the World Anti Doping Agency. Or I emailed them to ask them about their position and whether they're they're looking into it. And they basically said, ah, you know, we don't we're aware of it, but we haven't seen any compelling evidence. So they you know they restrict things based on three if it, if it ticks two of three boxes that it's enhances performance, that it's harmful to the athlete, and or it violates the spirit of the sport. And that third one, the spirit of the sport, is is the one that's like, what does that even mean? No, you know, there's no real definition. Uh, but there's not really solid evidence that it enhances performance yet or that it harms athletes. So um, it's kind of left in limbo for now. And I agree that it's not it's not clear how you would regulate it or if you did, whether there'd be any way of of, of checking that people are actually obeying it. Nonetheless, I think if they, if they wanted to, it would send a good signal. If you just say, look, it's not allowed. It doesn't mean nobody would cheat. It's like uh, some people would probably still use it in secret, but at least it would send the signal that it's not allowed in the same way that, you know, when, when we start talking about you know, and then this is another topic entirely, but, you know, people are like, oh, do- we should just allow doping because we're never going to eradicate doping. And it's like, well, you know what? We have rules against stealing. That doesn't mean, you know, there's still shoplifting, but that doesn't mean we say, oh, well, we're never going to eradicate shoplifting. So therefore we, sh- we should eliminate any penalties for stealing. No, you you do it to try and set the tone of what's acceptable. And you, and you understand that there's always going to be people who break the rules. Yeah, I mean, it also seems like it would be a really bad precedent for doping because then we would start just breeding superhumans and doing all kinds of drug and <laughs> things, and and it would be it would be harmful. I mean, people would probably die and things like that eventually. It was it yeah. was completely unregulated. I, I um, definitely agree. Yeah. Um. So, on that topic, um in regards to the breaking of the two hour marathon, I know there's a lot of shoe controversy. What's your thoughts on the carbon plate? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty conflicted about the carbon plate, carbon plate. My, you know, when I first heard about it, my instinct was that it should be banned. And this is, you know, two and a half years ago or whatever, um, that it's just, if, if it works as well as Nike initially claimed, and, and I think the subsequent evidence has Point out that it really does work that well, then it just skews the playing field. Um, but the tricky thing is, it's it went, it's easy to say that on as, as in a knee jerk way and say, yeah, you no, know, this shoe is too good. We shouldn't 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 allow it. But then you have to get down to the nitty gritty of like, okay, what's what's cheating about this shoe, or what what should we ban? It's like, well, you know, carbon fiber plates have been in shoes for a couple decades, and and. Other forms of stiffening plate have been in shoes for a couple of decades. You're not going to ban orthotics, and you know having a, a sort of resilient midsole foam, which is the other key ingredient of those of the new Vaporfly shoes. I mean, every shoe has a resilient midsole, and this one is maybe 10% better than the you know Adidas's Boost foam. So it's not like it's this radical new invention. It's basically just they've managed to do a bunch of different things that people have been doing for a number of years. They've managed to combine them and make them better. So I think in the end, I, I'm in favor of some sort of regulation. And one that's been proposed that I think is a good one is saying, look, let's just regulate the the thickness of the sole of the shoe. You can do whatever you want within a given thickness, uh, including having carbon fiber plates. But let's let's just kind of draw a line and say we're not going to keep going in this direction. So that in five years people are wearing like these crazy moon boots that are propelling them forward. Let's let's just keep it, you know, under some sort of regulation. But uh, the, the bottom line is like you know the, 
these shoes that with new carbon fiber plates in them, they're fast and they're apparently really comfortable too. And you know, they, they have extra cushioning. So people get to the end of marathons and they're feeling less beat up. And so it, whenever I get on my high horse and start saying, you know, we should ban these shoes, it's not fair. Another voice in my head is like, well, it would sure be nice if if it allows people to finish a marathon being a little less beat up, like nice for for me, nice for everyone. And so it, it again, it's one of those tricky issues in technology where you're trying to, you know, weigh the needs of elite athletes who where we really need to have a, a level playing field with the needs of everybody else. Where it's like, well, if there's a better shoe and it's you know has better cushioning and it's faster, it seems sort of silly to say this shoe is not allowed. Yeah. I mean, I've gone, I don't, I'm not sure what I think about it in terms of the competitive, but in full transparency, I ran New York city in a pair of them yesterday. So. Oh, um, and, and how are you getting up and downstairs these days? Is it feeling good? I mean, I mean, good is a stretch, but those shoes are amazing. I mean, I don't have the next, but I have the 4%. I have the, the model that came out previous to the next. And I was, they're very antithetical to the type of shoe I would usually run. And I was always a like flats, like the lightest, nothing as shoes possible, um, but not for a marathon particularly, but I wasn't really a marathon runner, but I, as soon as I tried those, I mean, they're kind of amazing feeling. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting paid a hundred thousand dollars to win the New York city marathon. Um, but you know, it is a sea of orange now green shoes out there. Um, yeah. and I mean, they're definitely worth the sticker price from how it makes you feel. So, so, and this is why, you know, I hear you and I hear so many other people saying things like that, that it's like, I don't, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I'm not, I, I think banning carbon fiber plates might be a shame, but if what we, maybe we can have the best of both worlds by bringing in some sort of regulation, like a stack height regulation, it's 31 millimeters or something, which is the, the nominal height of the initial, original vapor fly, say you can go this thick and no, no longer, then we can still have the shoes. We can still get the benefits of them, but we're just going to say, let, let, let's not keep going be, too far beyond this. Let's let's get the benefits, but but then we can get back on the competitive side. We can get back to the I, idea that uh, you know everyone's got roughly the same, you know, cause then the, if you, if you slow down that pace of innovation, other companies will be able to match it. And we'll get back to the case where it's not a bit, the, the playing field is relatively level. It's just, everyone's a bit faster. Everyone's got the benefit instead of like each year. Cause I guess what pushed me over the edge was, uh, watching Elliot Kipchoge in Vienna run his one fifty nine forty, which was really exciting. Like, uh, I, I love Kipchoge and it was pretty amazing to see that. But then you look at the close-up of his shoes, and it's like, wow, it's it's it's, and then these are prototypes that aren't yet available to anyone else, and it's like, it's yet another step beyond. And so it seems like every year for the last two or three years, there's been a, a new shoe that blows everyone out of the water. And so I kind of I don't mind one new shoe or even two new shoes, but if, if it becomes a yearly thing where it's like, well, let's see who's got the best shoes this year, then that to me starts to get a little frustrating. I mean, they do directly impact you know, essentially leg spring stiffness. I mean, they're essentially giving you more, you know, energy return. I mean, so it it is kind of a force multiplier, you know. Um, yeah, but so so is every shoe, right? These are just yeah. doing it better. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking a stand, but I, I personally like them. Um, but I, I was just curious, you know, there's a lot of controversy and I know, you know, I was listening to, Steve Magnus's podcast the other day and 
I mean, they weren't coming out necessarily and saying they should be banned or not, but they were saying that definitely, and I don't remember the statistics specifically, but previous to, you know, let's say a couple years ago, there was a certain amount of American runners who made the Olympic qualifying for the marathon, and now there was almost twice as many, and they were saying that that was based on the 4% or the vapor fly. Yeah, I mean, and I think... It, there, it's always hard. To, it's 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 always dangerous to to pick one statistic and then assume that there's one factor that explains that statistic. But at the same time, I think it's a reasonable guess that at least part of part of that fact, yeah, part of the raising of the game of of uh, you know marathoners in the U.S. and around the world uh, in the last year or two definitely has to do with the shoe. I think, yeah. So I think the, you know, the argument around the shoe two years ago was: is it possibly true that it does what Nike claims? And I think the argument has shifted now. The vast majority of people, definitely including me, would say, "Yes, yes, the shoe is that good." Now we just have to decide what we want to do about it. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, okay, let's leave that then. Uh, but I would say you might want to check them out. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. The full disclosure here: I have a pair in my basement. Um, I got a review pair from runner's world when they first came out and as it happened i was leaving runner's world uh and moving to outside magazine right at that time and they 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 delayed sending the shoes for so long that by the time i got them i couldn't review them for runner's world because i was at outside and i couldn't review them from outside for outside because runner's world had sent me the shoes so i just put them away and uh i eventually i got curious last year and i pulled them out and i ran one 5k race in them and they felt great and then I put them away again, just because I, I just was a little uncomfortable about it. But I'm thinking of running a spring marathon next year. And if I do, um, you know, barring any huge change in, in you know, the rules or in, the, in change of heart or whatever, I think I'll probably run them in in, in those pair of vapor flies that I've had on ice for, for almost three years now. Because, uh, yeah, I, I've run one marathon before and, and it was it was a grind for that last six miles or whatever. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm used to, I was a miler and then ran five K's. My stride is really optimized for short, short, fast running, not long sustained running. And so I think, uh, I think I could get a lot, not so much out of the propulsive power of the carbon plate, but out of that extra cushioning, I think it could really help. So yeah, d- d- don't let me, don't let me pretend that I'm casting aspersion on anyone who has the shoes because I, I've got a pair in my basement. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's cool. I mean, and one thing that was actually in that Steve Magnus podcast, I think that's where I heard this, that I hadn't considered because I've only, most of the argument is around, you know, what it brings to the race. But I believe it was on their podcast. They were talking about what it brings to training because it allows you to train harder with less, you know, like with taking some of the impact out. Yeah, um, there's there's a tiny bit of data. It's internal Nike data, so you know, take it take it for what it's worth. But they presented at a at a conference in the, over the summer, where they did a study with Vaporfly and non Vaporfly shoes running at, uh, a, you know, doing the same training and seeing uh, at a heavy training load and seeing how they responded. And it was like in the Vaporfly, they were recovering between the hard workouts and and their pay, average pace was getting faster as the weeks went on. In the non-vapor fly, they weren't quite recovering, and so their average pace was getting slower because they couldn't handle the density of training. So, I mean, look, it's it's a, a small study and it's a Nike study, but uh, that is the idea that if you, if you if you can train in them, then it, it allows you to push your cardiovascular system 
that little bit extra without your legs failing you. Yeah, no, I, I hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me. And I actually, you know, the only time I ever put them on is for a race because they're expensive. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. And they're not going to last that long. So I never, I ran, when I first purchased them, I did a, like, like a little seven mile run around the park in Brooklyn where I live. But, um, the, other than that, I've only worn them in a race. Um, so yeah, I did, I did when I did that 5k in them, I did it the week before I did a little temple run in them just to make sure that my feet wouldn't fall off. Then I did the 5k run, you know, stripped them off as soon as I was done the, the, the race to warm down and something else and put them away again. Cause I, I figured someday I'll wear them for a marathon and I want them to have as many, as many miles left on them as possible. Yeah. So, and let's just go back to your book for a second. Um, I, I was wondering so you said something earlier, and I totally agree. I didn't mean to imply that the the synopsis of the book is it's all mental. Like obviously, you know, you need to train the engine uh, and maximize. There's a lot of things that you can maximize. Um, what was there something like from an unrelated sport, you know, that you feel impacted or that you took away that would inform your running, you know, like you cover a lot of things aside from running, you know, mo like endurance, motorcycling. I don't know if that's the right word for it, diving, et cetera, et cetera. And for, in some ways, like those were really interesting to me to read because it's things I hadn't really considered. Um, you know, was there any kind of, you know, what things in there aside from the running aspects do you feel are things that you would either give advice to runners to read or you took away from it? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned the free diving. It, like if you had to, if I had to pick the thing that was most like surprising to me or fresh to me, definitely the free diving and same reason as you, like I've been reading about running for whatever, 30 years now or something. Um, and so there's always new things to learn, but it's at the margins. It's like, Oh, this is a little different than I thought. Whereas, you know, the reason I got, I, I looked at free diving is I, I have a chapter on oxygen. I wanted to look at all these different things that purportedly might limit, you know, define the ultimate limits of endurance. So is it true that, you know, when you're out of breath, it's because you can't get enough oxygen. So I was like, okay, well, what happens if you don't get enough oxygen? What are the limits of oxygen? So I ended up stumbling onto this literature on free diving. And, you know, first of all, it just absolutely blew my mind to discover that the world record for breath holding is I think it was 11 minutes and 40 seconds. And that's not, that's no trick. That's not like with pre-breathing oxygen or anything like, like David Blaine did and, and like others have done. This is just regular guy, stick your face in the pool, see how, how long you can hold your breath, 11 minutes, 40 seconds. And that tells you something pretty profound about uh, what you're feeling after, if you're me, if you know, trying to hold your breath for 90 seconds and, and you're like, okay, that's it. I'm cooked. It's like, that's, you know, that, that feeling is real, but it's not, doesn't reflect the fact that your muscles are out of oxygen, you're about to die. It's just a bunch of alar alarm signals ringing. And so to me, that, that was a really sort of profound, uh, you know, realization that, you know, I would say as an experienced runner, I knew that I wasn't, you know, passing out because I didn't have enough oxygen, but you still feel like you're just reaching the point where there isn't enough oxygen. And then it's like, no, it's a whole different level. And in fact, I, you know, after the book came out, I had a chance to chat with a guy, uh, 
Jason Hendrickson, I think his name was, who set the American record for breath holding, which was like eight minutes and 40 seconds, I think. And I got him to talk me through the dive. And, and what he was saying is there's this point you, that you reach if you're holding your breath where the, the struggle phase starts, where your, your body is convinced or your brain is rather is convinced that you're totally out of oxygen. And so it's forcing your diaphragm to contract. It's trying to force you to breathe. And you know, I've never got to that stage, but norm, anyone who does get to that stage, usually that's the end of the breath hold. But trained free divers learn to just sort of keep their mouth closed and, and ignore it because they know it's a false alarm. And so he said his struggle phase started somewhere between four and five minutes. So his brain was 100% convinced that he was out of oxygen and about to die four or five minutes in. And yet he because he was trained in, in sort of ignoring these signals, he was able to hold his breath for eight minutes and 40 seconds. And so that to me became a sort of metaphor, you know, one of the, for the, the, you know, the difference between perceived limits and actual limits. And, and one of the things people, a lot of people have asked since the book came out is, you know, I talk about pushing past what feels like your limits to get closer to your true, to your true limits. And they say, well, isn't this dangerous? Aren't you, aren't you at risk of, you know, those, those perceived limits are there for a reason. And if you push past them, you're, you're going to die or whatever. And my answer to that is, you know, there may be a kernel of truth to that. And there may be some situations, let's say you're running a marathon in Death Valley or something. And if you're really, really, really committed to just hammering yourself, you can get in trouble. You can, you can misjudge uh, those sorts of situations in, in situations like heat. But for the most part, there is a huge margin between our perceived limits and our actual limits. That there's a, there's a huge margin between holding your, feeling like you're out of breath at four and a half minutes and holding your breath until 840. And, and, and at 840, you know, you can, I've, I've watched the video of, of this guy, Jason Hendrickson setting the record. He, it's not that he runs out of breath. It's that he's underwater and his coach is tapping him. They'd agreed that he would come up after 830, eight minutes and 30 seconds. And he sort of forgets because by that point he's a little woozy, but at 840, he remembers like, okay, yeah, yeah, he comes up and, and that's the end. So it's like he, free divers, it turns out, have learned so effectively to kind of ignore or disable the warning system, they can hold the breath till they pass out, which is why free divers die sometimes if they because they, they are capable of being down there. And if they if they actually truly hit their actual limit when they're still deep underwater, then they're then they're at serious risk of drowning. So anyway, rambling answer, but to me that was something that was the most surprising thing that I then took back to and you know I think about that when I'm running and I feel like that's it. I can't go. And then I, you know, it, that doesn't mean that it suddenly becomes easy to to keep up with someone or to maintain my pace, but it's like, okay, this may be hard, but this is not actually your legs are about to fall off or you're about to die. This is just getting really hard. And are you going to be able to, do you want to try and keep pushing and maintain this pace for a little longer or do you not? Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I found that extremely intriguing part of the book as well. Um, you know, essentially I bought the book to like, answer all my questions about endurance running and I found this free diving thing just also pretty mind-blowing um all right well I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking to me um it's been a real pleasure are there any things that you want to just kind of close out with yeah no I think we covered some some good areas and and you know as as sort of general messages I guess one of the things I came away from the book with is is a sort of more humble approach to the idea of finding all the answers that that um, 
I didn't, I spent a long time on this book and I don't have the final answers to endurance. And I think that's okay. And I, and I think, I hope for runners out there who are trying to find their, the, their own limits, it, it's sort of kind of a good and healthy thing to, to realize that we will always have probably more questions than answers. But as we think about them, we may find, you know, a path that helps me or you or whoever, uh, it'll be different for every person, but you find something, some angle or some new insight that will allow you to push a little harder in your next race. Yeah, I know that's a, that's really a good closing sentiment. Um, once again, thanks. Thank you so much for coming on. And, you know, I look forward to speaking to you at some point in the future. Yeah. Thanks, Derek. It's been great to, uh, to talk after being sort of in contact for a little while and to finally uh, have a chance to chat. So thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Force Divided by Mass. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a positive review. Until next time.